Welcome to the Tea with Brie. I'm your host, Brie. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Brie podcast is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Every week, we'll start with my guest's bio, an intro to how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they want to talk about that week. This week, I am joined by my guest, Grace Sandick. Grace, he uses she, her pronouns, was born and raised in Durham, North Carolina. She graduated from Northeastern University in Boston with a degree in psychology and human services, focusing on adolescent abnormal psychology. Simply put, her life's mission is to work with children with trauma, specifically those with aggressive and self-harming behaviors, and all of the scratches, bruises, and bite marks that come with it. Her background includes six years of experience serving children and adolescents with severe behavioral disorders and a variety of settings and capacities, including residential centers and as a special education teacher and as an intervention specialist. Currently, she works as a special education behavior support and intervention in an elementary school in Austin and was just offered a new position by the Texas Juvenile Justice Department. In the fall, Grace will be attending the University of Texas at Austin Clinical Social Work Master's Program, which she hopes to use to continue working with children and adolescents who have suffered trauma. She is passionate not just about improving the lives of these individuals, but also about educating about the lasting effects these traumas can have on brain development and children's lives. When she is not being kicked in the face by seven-year-olds, Grace can be found doing yoga, cooking, or hiking with her incredibly cute dog, Chip. Hi, Gracie. Hi, friend. How are you? <laughs> I am lovely. How are you? Yeah. I'm good. I brought my tea to the tea with Brie. I, I see. I have a beer because it has been a day. <laughs> it has been a week. It's and really funny because the first time you and I ever hung out, we went out to drinks and you weren't drinking and I was. So I got a beer and you got kombucha, kombucha. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so now we have a nice little reversal. I mean, to be fair, I'm drinking a sour beer, which is almost the same as kombucha. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, so we've been friends a little over a year, I guess. Yeah, we oh met. God, that's it. Almost a year ago. Oh, I think it's been so much longer. Yeah, for real. We met at Harry Potter trivia. We did at a gay bar that was having Harry Potter trivia, and you walked in with people who we both knew, but like I didn't yeah. know you yet. And you were just the coolest. And then we re-met at 4th of July when I also wasn't drinking, but you had drunk enough for the both of us. And then that's yeah, the I had- <laughs> we became friends. No, was it? Oh, yeah, it was 4th of July and Asher's, like, going away party. It was, like, a Yeah, it was. Uh, and I remember I kept being, like, we're going to go get coffee. Because when I met you at Harry Potter Trivia, I remember you added me on Facebook, and I, like, saw everything that was on there. And I was, like, this girl's way too cool to ever <laughs> hang out with me. Stop it. <laughs> And then I was like, 
I had had a little liquid courage at 4th of July and I just kept remembering, I was like, we're going to go get coffee. We're going to go get coffee. And then we, well, I got a beer and you got kombucha, but. Which was so did. funny because like you were drunk and I was talking to a friend who's at the party. I'm like, she will not remember at all that she asked me to hang out. <laughs> and then Lexi like, hey, like I remember. I just want to make sure we're still I'm like, oh yeah, no, of course. So yeah yeah which also like anyone who's ever listening i'm not too cool for anyone like i <laughs> so many people say this to me like i'm just like i'm so intimidated to like come up and talk to you i'm like i am the biggest nerd slash goof Can slash confirm. like chill person you'll ever meet it's just like i like to do a lot of shit and so here we are hence the podcast you're listening <laughs> to right now um but yeah we've been friends ever since and i mean i feel like this last year with there's just been so much that has happened and I yeah. love the fact that you and I are just solid and I'm glad that you're tuning in today. Grace will text me every week when she listens to the podcast on her walk. So now she's finally here and I'm excited. My favorite thing is that we have a group chat with a, like a group of our friends and sometimes I'll be listening to your podcast and then we'll be like texting in the group chat. So it's just a lot of Brie happening in my life and it's excellent. I mean, I, I, if only everyone could be so lucky. So, what is the topic for today? Wait, sorry, are we already going? <laughs> yeah, we're going to just roll right in. Okay. Um, so, my topic that I wanted to bring today is trauma, um, specifically trauma that's experienced in childhood and then how um, that affects kids later on in life, um, which is what I do and what my life's passion is, as it said in the, the bio. Um, so just like a little um, background into who I am, um, I went to Northeastern University and I um, majored in psychology because I wanted to be a therapist. I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know that you couldn't just be a therapist, that you had to be a certain kind of therapist. Um, and so my freshman year of college, I watched this movie called Short Term 12, which I would recommend to everybody and anybody it's an independent movie it has brie larson in it and like rami malik and stephanie beatrice from brooklyn 99 um and it's about a short-term facility for kids um who have severe behavioral disorders and what that experience is like for the people who work there and i kind of watched it and sort of thought that's something that i think i'd be interested in um and northeastern makes you do six-month internships you can do between one and three and so for my first one I went to a job interview and they were like, have you seen this movie short term 12? Cause that's kind of what we do. And I was like, yes, I'll, that's exactly, yeah, I can do that. And the only question they asked me in the interview was like, how will you feel when you get punched in the face by a five year old? And I was kind of like, I don't think I'll love it, but my life will go on. Um, so I worked in a short term facility um, and short term facilities are usually for kids who've been removed uh, due to CPS, which is child protective services involvement. Um, and in the process of the investigation, also discovering that the kid has some kind of behavioral disorder, which can be PTSD, but can also be bipolar disorder um, and emerging other disorders, ADHD, hyperactive disorder, um, oppositional defiant disorder. So I worked there for six months and then did a second co-op at a place called the Judge Rottenberg Center, which is a high crisis center. So they take the most difficult cases in the country, um, kids who can't live in the state that they live in. And so they come to the, to the JRC to finish their high school. Um, and those kids were kids who had been in and out of the juvenile justice system, um, kids who had been through sex trafficking, kids who had been through things that were so horrible, I, it was hard to read them sometimes. 
Um, and then also had these really intense behaviors, which would include um, being incredibly aggressive, being incredibly self-harming. I've had to stop several kids from running in front of oncoming traffic, for example. And doing both of those experiences made me really passionate about working with kids with trauma and, and helping them um, reform those maladaptive behaviors that get formed when trauma happens. Um, and so I continued to focus on trauma, did my senior thesis on trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, and then came, moved to Austin um, and worked here as a special ed teacher in a private special education school for a year and a half and left that in December. And now I work for a public school as behavior support. So I work under the special ed department um, and I will go into classrooms when kids are having a hard time. Maybe they're not doing their work. Maybe they're being aggressive. Maybe they're being disruptive. And I come in and either try to talk them through it or maybe we have to you know, go somewhere else that they can be more successful. Um, so that's what I do and that's what my background's in. Um, and that's why I'm really passionate about this subject. Uh, partially because I think a lot of people don't know that PTSD, what PTSD is, where it comes from. Um, I think a lot of people, when they think of PTSD, they think of a soldier hearing fireworks and thinking it's a gunshot, uh, which is PTSD and is very valid PTSD. But PTSD can come from any kind of trauma, and trauma can include witnessing abuse, experiencing abuse, um, experiencing homelessness at a really early age, experiencing food insecurity at a really early age, experiencing poverty at a really early age. All of those things can be traumatic experiences and create PTSD in children and then can also lead to these maladaptive behaviors. And a maladaptive behavior is a behavior that a kid develops in order to adapt to the situation they're in, but then when they're put, they're no longer in that situation, they continue that behavior mm. and it's not functional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I know a lot of people say like trauma lives in the body, which is totally true. Um, and one of the main places it lives is in the brain. And so they have done a bunch of research looking at brain development with trauma. And there's this dude and I, I had to say his name during my senior thesis, and I definitely pronounced it wrong, and I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong now, and I apologize. He's That's French. Fine. His name's Jacques Pansquet, and he did this really interesting experiment with rats where he took a bunch of younger rats, and he put a cat hair in the cage, and the rats freaked out. Like, they, they couldn't handle it because they're instinctive, like, there's a cat coming to kill me went on and he left it in there for a couple of days and then he took it out and the rats never recovered. They wouldn't go near the area where the cat hair had been in. They were super skittish. And then as what unfortunately happens to rats, um, they dissected their brains and looked at what had changed. Um, they've also done um, MRIs and EEGs with children who've experienced trauma as they've gotten older. Um, but what they found was that there were certain parts of the brain that developed differently. So not just that there was the react, the initial reaction, but it actually caused a chain change in the way their brain develops. Um, so things like your hippocampus, which is what controls that fight or flight, that cortisol, that adrenaline um, develops differently. 
your corpus callosum, which is what controls your impulsivity, is much smaller in people who've experienced trauma. And then your prefrontal cortex is also smaller, which is what, um, which is what causes emotional regulation. All of that very lengthy neuroscience, which I apologize for, is to say that people who've experienced trauma, their brain is differently, therefore they react to things differently. So what that can look like in my work, for example, is, for example, I have a kid who experienced abuse from her mom, and the way that that abuse manifested was her mom would restrict food from her. So as a punishment, her mom wouldn't give her dinner or might make her eat something she didn't want to eat. And so she has a lot of trauma around food. And so if you say something to her, like if she says, I want a snack, you have to be really careful about the way that you say it to her because if you say, no, you can't have a snack, point blank, she'll run out of the classroom. Because in her mind, she's never getting food ever again because mm. she had that food insecurity. Another example, I had a kid I worked with um, who had, I noticed a chapstick that had like another kid's name on it, uh, which when you work in a residential center, a lot of times kids will take other kids' stuff. And I kind of just asked him like, hey, is that yours? And he, you could see he thought in his head, I'm in trouble. And he ran out into the snow without a coat on. And it took me like 35 minutes to get him to come inside. Because in his head, he probably had gotten hurt at home when he had done things that were wrong. So he thought that that's what was going to happen to him. Yeah, well, that makes me think of uh, a maladaptive behavior <clears throat> that I used to witness when I worked with people who had been experiencing homelessness is like once you got them housed, even them being in an apartment was really hard for them because they were so used to like not being in an apartment, right? Like they would still like use their tent in their apartment or like would still sleep in sleeping bags versus like on their bed, like all these things from that trauma of like not having a place to call home and then putting them in that situation. It's like you have to relearn how to do these things that like a lot of us never have had to go through. Um, so yeah, like when you bought that up, that's immediately what I, what I thought of too. Absolutely. Or even um, I had grandparents who immigrated here from Poland. Um, my grandfather lived through the great depression was a soldier in world war two. So experienced a lot of food insecurity and he would never throw out food like even into his like eighties. He was a whole thing throwing out food. He would freeze it. He would keep it forever. You keep it past its expiration. And for him, it was, you don't know when you're not being able to have food again. Um, and it's behavior that I'm sure when he was, for example, a soldier and had to maybe eat things that were moldy or had to hold on to food was really adaptive and probably kept him alive. Um, but then once he returned to normal society, I'm putting that in quotes, even though this is a podcast, mm. um, it was really maladaptive because then there was rotting food in the house. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, I used, I worked with uh, adults and children with developmental disabilities. A lot of, I, and then I worked at a school for children who have autism and like a lot of that, like you, whenever you text me about like a kid who had a behavior that day, I just like immediately go back to like that era of my life. Um, just because like I remember working with those kids every day of like they're not bad kids I think a lot of people like want to categorize everyone into like good and bad like they're not bad either a lot of a lot of the children with autism who I worked with like didn't speak so like a lot of either sign language or pointing or like just taking a lot of time for them to like tell you without words what they wanted to have like a lot of patience or like they would get frustrated and so like they would get physical but it's that too of like the, the different ways that like 
that is sort of like a trauma, right? Like not being able to speak in its own like term is just like a thing you're going through that you'll never like really get used to, right? Like I, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that, but that's something that <laughs> made me think of that too. It was like working in that school with those kiddos who were just like really great kids. Like I loved that job. Um, but it, it was hard work and like a lot of people aren't, aren't made for it. So I also want to commend you for doing <laughs> this really tough job. Cause I mean, it's, it's for sure needed. And I think about the parents who like don't get to have a break. Like it's just, especially while we're here during the yeah. quarantine, I'm just like thinking about them all the time. Cause I mean, I did also uh, residential and I nannied for a family that had a child who didn't speak uh, for a long time chip um <laughs> yeah, you guys can hear chip in the background um but yeah i mean i just yeah right now my heart goes out to all those and then also like speaking of quarantine and covid like what this sort of trauma is going to do to us like we're not used to like being in the house all the time or you know people who are now going to experience homelessness because they can't go to work they don't have a job anymore like just there's a lot of things that are going to come up because of the current thing that we're experiencing Absolutely. Yeah. And like, just to sort of piggyback on what you said earlier, a big thing for me, because especially with a lot of the kids I work with, um, they usually when by the time they've gotten to me, um, have been called bad kids, mm-hmm. have been made to feel like bad kids. And I don't believe any kids are bad. And I think it's one of the reasons why I, I'm really intentional about the way I talk about children. I will never call a kid aggressive kids are not aggressive they have aggressive behaviors yeah um because that's really important to me because a kid should not be defined by their behavior um and one of the things i used to do with with some of my kiddos um when i worked in boston is our kids would have what were called black books um and they were these compilation books of every juvenile record these kids had had all of their medical information all of their um child and family protective services Um, information it was all in these books and you could read through them Um, and I did when I first started working there and then I kind of stopped um, at a certain point and I had a kid one day like mention like oh you've probably read my black book Uh, and I was like no I actually have it and she was like why haven't you and I was like well my job I have two jobs every day when I come to work the first is to keep you safe and keep me safe and the second is to prepare you for the world and me knowing that about you and having that be your defining feature doesn't help me keep you safe doesn't help keep me safe and it doesn't help me prepare you for the world because when you walk through the world you won't be defined by those things and you won't be defined by the things that you did here you won't be defined by the things that have happened to you and I want to give you that opportunity and prepare you for that opportunity yeah I'm not going to cry today (laughs) kids are not bad they're just having a a moment yeah yeah kids are not bad they're having a rough day and also like that language like to just think of like how how quickly we just like throw kids aside right or like label them and just like don't want to put in that effort of like uh my friend liz was a couple episodes back um and we talked about um the prison uh, to pipeline the pres- the uh, school to prison pipeline of like how a lot of like children of color, particularly black kids, are labeled as bad and like thrown away. But I think about this in like this term too of like these kids who are having these behaviors now in this young age, like this is gonna like follow them on their records forever, like all through school. And it's like really unfair of like 
these things that they are going through, the traumas that they have faced are now going to quote unquote define them because they have gone through the sin that they couldn't control. They have no say. And like we, and I think that's like one of the biggest things of like what we're going to right now in, in quarantine is like, I was listening to a podcast the other day talking about like how a lot of how for some people like going to work into school was a relief of like not being in your abusive home or knowing that you're going to get fed because you get free lunch at school. Like there's a lot of things that are going on in these spaces right now of the safeties that were in place as a society though. Very society is very unfair, obviously, but like just those things that are like a little bit like a little safety net for those kids. Like my heart breaks for that. Cause like that's also a trauma they're now living through too, like these kids who are now 24-7 in home or wherever they are staying um, in these traumatic experiences. Yeah, and I mean, I know for me, um, like I, like you were saying earlier, I really feel for the kids that I work with because even though a lot of them have amazing families and, and my heart goes out to their families because a lot of them, um, I've been Zooming a little bit with some of my kids and a lot of their parents um, you know, are trying to work from home while having multiple kids at home and also trying to be a teacher. Um, so bless all the parents out there right now. But um, a lot of my kids who, you know, don't feel understood and don't feel like anybody's on their side, sometimes even their parents, because parents, you know, can sometimes get exhausted, understandably. Um, and where they had that safe space with us, don't have that right now. And, and I really do feel for that. And um, really do miss a lot of the kids that I work with and get to see on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, I want to kind of dig deeper down into this. Like, what what else can you tell us about, like, trauma, what you do, how it, like, really affects, like, the kids long-term? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so trauma, when a kid experiences trauma, what tends to happen is that they go into fight-or-flight mode. And when they experience extended trauma, that fight-or-flight mode just never gets turned off. Um, and so how that manifests for a lot of kids is that their immediate reaction when they feel threatened, when they feel nervous, sometimes even when they're really excited, they go either to an aggressive behavior or to an elopement, which is to run. And that's obviously very maladaptive if you're in a classroom that a teacher says, hey, I need you to hang on, and you run out of the classroom. And in the other ways it can affect kids is that they might react really, really strongly to something that would seem quote-unquote trivial. So like I said before with the girl who might be asked to wait or might be told, hey, you need to finish your work before you get a snack or you've had six snacks already, you can't have another one. To, to you or I, it's like, okay, I just need to wait or okay, I've had six snacks, I'll get another one in an hour. To her, it's this fight or flight, I'm never going to get to eat again, I need to run, I need to find food, or uh, if I ask again, I might get hit by somebody, so I need to run and hide to get away. Um, and that can continue with a kid throughout life, and even people who experience trauma when they're a little bit older, when they're adolescents, or even college students, that trauma can affect their behavior. For example, I know from my own life, I was in a really, really volatile, really, really horrible relationship when I was in college. And one of the things that the person I was with used to do was when they would punish me. So if I did something they didn't like, they just wouldn't talk to me. 
which was really traumatic and would cause me to get very like frenzied and anxious. And when I later dated somebody, every time we would get in an argument and we'd be on the phone and he'd be like, I have to go. I would say something like, are, are you sure you're going to call me back? And I would, and I would perseverate over it. And it was this thing that I was super focused on. And at one point he asked me, why do like, why do you focus so much on this? Of course, I'm going to call you back. If I say I'm going to call you back, I'm going to call you back. And I, I explained to him why. And he said, well, I'm not that other person. And I think what that speaks to and what is really hard sometimes for people to understand is that trauma isn't logical. It doesn't have a rhyme or reason. You can't just explain to me, I'm not that person. Or you can't just explain to a kid, you're going to get a snack in an hour if they don't think they're going to get that snack in an hour. It's this really illogical thing. And when people try to approach it from this very logical perspective, it just doesn't work. I don't think I've ever looked at it that way, right? Like, I think people think of, like, you go through a trauma, you get out of it, you should just be fine. Like, I don't think people understand that, like, like you were saying about PTSD, like, people think it's always, like, someone who went to war or, like, was in a physically abusive situation, but I don't think people ever think about, like, emotional abuse or, you know, putting someone's safety in jeopardy, but in different ways. Like, there's a million different ways to cause trauma to someone but like I think that's just a different perspective of it like I'd never thought of it that way of like yeah trauma trauma isn't logic and I think like as people we always like again try to box everything in like if for example like you could have taken that as you know this person wasn't physically abusive to me so like how dare I be try to experience trauma that way or like I think it's always like the who has it worse off, like, thing with people. Absolutely. Like, no, like, you are allowed to have the shit you went through, and so is someone else, and both of them are valid. Um, and no, you know, all trauma is trauma. Like, we don't have to, like, logically explain it, like, to to make ourselves more comfortable. But I, but I think of it that way, too, of, like, generational trauma is a thing I am so focused on these days, um, especially as, like, I mean, being a black person in America, like thinking about how the system has just never been on our side and like how much general tr generational trauma comes from that of like you were saying, big people who've experienced homelessness and poverty and like, you know, uh, not to equate the two, but like how things repeat itself, like a teenage mother, like if you were raised by a teenage mother, you are likely to become a teenage mother. Like, generationally just because that's what you grew up seeing and like what you identify with like statistically it's proven that you know that's there's a higher rate that that will happen so like you see the like, people who like grew up in poverty or poor typically never get out of that cycle because it's generational like they don't know how to get a leg up and it's very much like in communities of color so I think of that too of like if we think of like the school to prison pipeline how poverty affects people of color how the system just doesn't you know get us anywhere that trauma and then, like, also, like, in communities of color, like, trauma isn't always really identified, right? Like, growing up, it, you know, luckily not for me, but, like, the generation before me, like, going to therapy was seen as, like, black people don't go to therapy. It's not something, like, you don't tell other people about your problems. And so I'm very happy that, like, times have changed. But I think about that, too, of, like, how long it takes people to talk about things because we often don't give them the space to talk about their trauma because we're trying to make everything logical. Absolutely. And even, like, so... 
we're on a podcast so people can't see this, but I am a, a white woman. Um, and I have primarily worked with um, children of color. And something that I'm really conscious of is in my work, I have to do physical restraint sometimes, um, which is when you hold somebody in um, a, a position you're licensed to do so in, but you hold them to prevent them from hurting themselves or others. Um, it's never fun. It's not a part of my job I enjoy, but um, has pretty much been a consistent part of my job for the past five years. Um, and I am always really conscious of, of what it means for me to hold an African-American child and for them to have a person that has my skin color touching their body and for preventing sure. their body from doing things. And especially when I've had to do restraints on the floor, I am really aware of how that might bring up things for them, even if they maybe haven't experienced um, police involvement or police aggression of any kind, just that internalized and generational trauma of having somebody that's not um, somebody they're comfortable with having their hands on them. Um, so that is something like I try to be really conscious of in the work that I do. This is hard. <laughs> I know it's, it's a, it's, it's a hard one. I, it's funny cause I'm listening to your podcast from the beginning and I remember like the first, the second one I listened to, which was Brits. Oh yeah. It was like this like really fun, like lighthearted thing. And I texted you and I was like, I don't think my podcast is going to be lighthearted at all. Which is fine. No, I mean, I, like I said, I love uncomfortable conversations. It's just like how I'll like, I don't know. I, I, my brain is just moving a mile a minute of like, there was just so much stuff to talk about in trauma period. Like, I even think about just language, right? Like, you brought up the black book and how, like, I mentioned this in other episodes. Gosh, Chip. <laughs> I've been doing this. No, you're fine. Listen, this is what happens when you record on Zoom. Um, she I've, just wants to be a part of the podcast. She, listen, she's, a, she's an avid listener. I get it. Um, but I think about that, too, of, like, how language is a big thing. Like, how you're blacklisted, how you're blackballed. And so if like for that to be a black book is just like this other like negative connotation around the color black or being black. And so, yeah, I think of like that trauma too. Like I was talking to a friend today who is a white man who is very liberal, who like is just trying to be the best version of himself, which he's still kind of, and be the best like supporter and advocate he can. But I mean, we're human. We still mess up. Um, but he messaged me today and was like, hey, I need your opinion on something. Give it to me straight. I'm like, that's literally who I am all the time. Um, but he was buying a shirt of, and it had Rosa Parks on it, but it was her mugshot. And interesting but that's what i said he was like what do you think about this I'm like if i saw a white person wearing a picture of rosa parks's mugshot on their shirt i would lose my shit and i get what the people who designed the shirt were hopefully trying to say of like we all know rosa parks is very famous it's most famous for the boycott of the bus and like not giving up her seat but i also think of like of all the images of rosa parks why is it the one of why is it her mugshot that's the most iconic and if you google it's the first photo that comes up like not really? anything yeah not any, anything else of her like besides like a like her generic like regular headshot but like her most like search one is like her mugshot and it's just like this iconic woman who was known for doing this really fantastic thing and yet all we focus on the fact that she was arrested well and, like i've experienced that a lot with kids that i've worked with that They've always been defined by their worst 
thing. Yeah. And, and what I always, you know, say to kids is I'm never going to judge you based on the worst thing you've ever done. Cause I don't believe in judging anybody on the worst thing they've ever done. And, um, especially when a lot of the kids I've worked with have done the things that they've done because of really dire circumstances that they were in, um, and not to survive and, and to not, not just completely derail this, but we don't have social services in this country that support people in the way they need to be supported. I mean, even most of my kids are from New York, which is a fairly liberal, fairly um, high tax paying city. And even there, there were a lot of social services that failed a lot of my kids. I mean, I have had kids who CPS workers were overworked and weren't able to get to them in time or were not given the proper social services um, were not able to get the proper counseling or therapies that they needed to deal with the things that they had been through. Um, were not given housing support or things like that. And so a lot of the kids that I work with were just fighting to survive literally and um, may have had police involvement because of that. And then for a lot of my kids, that's, that's kind of it that then they're in the system and, and the system will just keep trying to push them through as long as I can. Yeah. And like back to this conversation on like what we're all currently going through as as a society, right? Like a lot of people for the f- I've read something the other day. I'm not going to I'm not going to quote it correctly, but it was essentially like how people who now are either having to stay home or be the primary caregiver for their kid or like experience this healthcare crisis of like how a lot of white people are feeling very like feeling the effects of it. And a woman I follow on Instagram the other day was like, now imagine this is your normal because you are black. Like every single day the system is against you. So you as a white person are finally experiencing what it's like to not be at the tippy top because we're all kind of in this like same like almost quote unquote level field of like we're getting updates at the same time we don't really know what's going on but like it was a friend i was saying the other day of like people who are not in like the upper middle to upper upper class who are like who have all these um who have access to things one like you can it was a lot of it like going around like your regular life and like things are going fine but now like this one thing happens and it throws off your whole day. Whereas people who live lower, lower middle class poverty, who are really used to like the stack being against them are able to acclimate and respond and react to things because it's their normal. Like it's the survival instincts almost. So I think about that too now, right? Of like a lot of these kids who are going through this trauma are surviving or like acclimating more easy because this is what the system has told them. Like bad things are going to continually keep happening to you. So just get used to it, grin and bear it. But like, I think right now everyone's going through and like all of us, like not really knowing what's next. It's, it's so fascinating to see how like almost like inconvenienced and annoyed that people who aren't, who are usually in the like, privileged spaces aren't really knowing how to react to that so that's that's been one of the most fascinating things to watch right now of like and then also like the people who like still aren't taking this seriously like great like uh like i was on instagram last night and a woman in new york had posted a video saying that her sister who was younger died of covid 
because she went to the hospital a couple times being like, I can't breathe. And they're like, it's your asthma. It's you have pneumonia. It's this, it's that. And then they didn't actually diagnose her with Corona until they had to put her on a ventilator. And it's this thing too of like black people aren't believed when we say something is wrong with us, right? Like doctors or like I've said it before, like Beyonce and Serena Williams, like almost both died in childbirth because the doctors didn't believe that they were actually in pain. Like it's this thing too of like seeing how much like, and I, I don't know a better way to put this, but like going privilege still, there's still privilege to people who suck, who go through trauma in different bodies. Like if you take and put a black kid and a white kid in similar situations, it's more than likely the white kid will like be given all these like different, um, access to different cares and all that stuff like but a black kid will just like be pushed aside and not believe so i think of trauma that way too like trauma is like everything else in society is very based on race and the response you get and like you're saying like these these uh social workers and all these folks who are trying to be as even keeled as possible i'm sure there's people coming down being like well if they have this one white kid who let's be honest like crimes and shit with white kids aren't as highly reported as it is with kids of color so you come in and have this one kid, this black kid with like all these priors because he's constantly in this like never ending loop of the cops being called versus this one white kid who's been probably, who could probably, for sake of argument, has been doing more quote unquote illicit things, but because he's white, people don't call the cops on him. So like, this is the first time. So they're going to think the white kid is more able to be quote unquote fixed than the black kid. So I think of trauma that way too, like how trauma is also really racist if we think of like the, the the structures and systems in place that still continue to fail those who actually need the assistance. Absolutely. And like I, um, for example, had a kiddo who I guess she's not a, she's probably not call her a kiddo because by now she's probably like 24. But uh, <laughs> when I worked with her, when I worked with her, she was 17 and um, she had the CPS involvement had kind of, amped up and had started because she was found at 15 years old in the back of her, um, quote unquote pimps van. And, um, when the police had busted it, um, they did not believe that she was 15 years old and they thought she was lying and they booked her for sex work. And it took her grandmother coming down with her birth certificate. Cause she was, she looked a lot older. Um, and there's a lot, she was, a child of color and there's a lot of research that shows that especially um uh, fee- uh girls of color get sexualized at a really really early age um yep. as uh men of color tend to be um thought of as more quote-unquote aggressive as at a younger age um but it's like her grandmother coming down and, and with her birth certificate because she did look older um they didn't believe her and i had then had a situation with her where i she was hate to say this way, but like on the right side where she was reporting a crime. Um, and that experience was, she just was super traumatic for her to first of all, be faced with law enforcement, but also um, they were not kind to her. It was really eye opening for me to be there with her while she was um, supposed to be giving a statement and they were really pushy with her. They were asking questions like, are, are you sure that that's what happened? Um, they were sort of clearly not believing her or not believing that this thing had happened to her. And she was of course feeling that and then was being very uncooperative. At one point they threatened to like put her in handcuffs. 
Um, and this, and she was, she was the one giving the statement. She was not the one oh, wow. who was um, being potentially charged. Um, and so even to watch that, um, and to know my own privilege that if somebody, unfortunately, that looked like me walked in and and was reporting a sexual assault, which is what she was reporting, um, would have probably not received that treatment. You've been treated way differently. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, there were a few times where when I worked in residential, we would have to call the police because the kids would riot. Um, and if you were at a resident, which are residents, which look like houses, um, there just may not be enough staff safety wise and the police can get there a lot quicker than other people can. Um, and I worked with kids at that point who were bigger than me. So if we were calling the police, it was because we were really in, in danger of someone's safety. Um, and when the police did get involved, it was really re-traumatizing for a lot of the kids. Um, even if the police were just sort of coming in, I mean, some of them were really great and they would come in and they would come straight to us and they would be like, what do you need from us? Um, but even when that, and that was the best of circumstances, sometimes they would come in like blazing, being like, we got this. And I'd be like, I don't really need you to do that. Um, but when they would come in and even when they were doing the best, um, cause some of them really were great. It was still really traumatizing for the kids to have that, that, law enforcement in there and that just came from the trauma of having yeah. always been treated i mean i had kids who told me that they got pulled out of classrooms when they were like 12 by police officers which is horrifying to me because yeah. no 12 year old should experience that i mean i had kids who were put in handcuffs at really early ages who were put in the back of police cars um who might have been put in a holding cell when they were like 13 or 14 yeah which sounds traumatizing yeah. I mean, I even think about it like with me, when I moved here, um, it was a couple of months after Sandra Bland was murdered. And so I now hate driving at night. I hate driving by myself in Texas. Like I, whenever I see a cop car on the street, I get such bad anxiety that I just pull over. Like I cannot physically drive and it's, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just driving my car and it's just I think that's just like societal trauma of being a black person in this country and with like all the police brutality that goes on and just being very like constantly on edge of like I will not drive I always like I'm way under the speed limit I will like I said I will pull over when I see a cop car just because of like you never know like it's just that constant living in constant fear of just being a black person in this country and like wanting to live a life but you know knowing that at any possible moment a cop can pull me over because like a taillight is out or what have you and just like yeah that that trauma of just being in the in this space so like hearing that about your kids who like that's like now a thing they have to live with because they were in school while black like that's literally all it was is like a teacher decided that they were being a problem quote unquote problem kid and called the cops like all these people who a couple like what last year year before was calling the cops on black people like having barbecues in the park or like all this like random bullshit like people know that the police will show up and not believe black people and so it's like at this point it's more or less like you know that if you call the cops you you could be sentencing a person to death and like i don't think people I think people know that asshole people know that, but I don't think, you know, it's, it's something that's widely talked about. And that's a trauma. That's like a lot of black people are dealing with right now in this country. Absolutely. And, and to sort of tie it back a little bit, it's one of the things when I work with kids a lot 
one of the first things you have to do is build up that trust because they have that trauma that every adult in the same way, you know, you probably don't know what cop is coming past you at night. Um, and the same way, like a kid may not know me, they have an established trauma that adults lie, adults hit me, adults scream at me, adults don't feed me, adults, um, you know, put me out in the snow without a coat on. Um, and they, it's even though I may not look like, I may not sound like, I may not have anything in common with the person that may have done those things to them. A lot of when I first start working with a kid is just building up that trust and having them believe that I am an adult that's going to help them. Because um, a lot of kids, they've had every adult walk out. They've had every adult not care or they've had every adult really hurt them or really do something that caused them a lot of pain. And so I try to be an adult that doesn't do those things and that shows up and that says I'm going to come back when I'm going to. Um, because a lot of kids just have trauma around adults and the way that adults interact with them. I don't know where I'm going to go with this. I feel like this has been very heavy and very eye-opening, and I think it's just... I think, like, something... I, my, as, you, as I said in my bio, um, my passion is not just working with kids with trauma, but also just educating people on how trauma impacts people um, in different ways, including into adulthood. And so if there's, if there's anything anybody who's listening to this can take away, it's give people who have had these experiences a little bit of grace a lot of grace actually um, and a lot of understanding and a lot of compassion and don't try and be logical. I think when you try to logic it, it will never work and then you'll get frustrated and they'll get frustrated. And I think just creating safe spaces for people. Um, if you have friends who, you know, have experienced trauma, even up into adulthood, give them that safe space. Um, if you know somebody who's had trauma, encourage them to get counseling, to get therapy, and just give them a lot of space and a lot of patience. And if you do in any kind of capacity work with children, um, please educate yourself on what signs of trauma can be. Um, most people who do work with kids are given some kind of training, but maybe educate yourself a little bit more. Um, I know that a lot of the initial trainings I got were not sufficient enough. Um, so that would be one as well. I love that. Um, are there any events, organizations, websites that you want to tell us about before we get to the wrap? Um, this has nothing to do with trauma, but um, <laughs> Crooked Media, which we both love, is has a coronavirus relief fund. Um, if you donated to it, they will spread your dollar as far as they possibly can across different organizations that are helping during this really, really hard time. I don't know if by the time this podcast comes out, I'm assuming that um, there will still be a lot of people that need help. Um, one of the main things they do, the main organizations that they benefit, is helping kids get school lunches. Um, a lot of kids who are in public school, their free lunch and free breakfast may be the only meal that they get or that they can count on. A lot of schools are providing um, breakfast and lunch, but the parents have to pick it up, which can be really difficult. Um, so if you can, give a little money if you're able to. Um, and then within Austin, there were three organizations that help kids here with trauma, um, Safe Alliance, um, Helping Hands for Children, and the Settlement Home for Children. Um, if you're able to volunteer or donate to any of them, they could also very much need it, especially right now, because they are still housing kids, even though they are not um, necessarily receiving the same funds that they were before. 
Yeah, all three of those organizations are great. Um, And as always, I'll be sure to link all these in the show notes. And then, you know, the final question, what is the best advice you were ever given or what's a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? So I have two um, because I'm an overachiever. Um, The first one has absolutely nothing to do with anything we've been talking about, but it was a piece of advice that my dad gave me when I was far too young to appreciate it. But um, he told me, I was in an argument with a friend when I was very young and he told me, you know, there's a point in any argument where you have to decide that which is more important, your relationship with the person or being right. And he was like, and sometimes your relationship with the person is going to be more important and you're just going to say, this isn't, this isn't as important as our friendship and be over it. And he's like, and sometimes you're going to be right. And he was like, and it's okay to, that being right is more important. And that was something I think for me, I've always held with me because I've definitely gotten to a point in a lot of arguments with people where I'm like, I have to decide. And I like think back to my dad, like I have to decide like which is more important right now, my relationship with this person or being right. And there have definitely been times where I've chosen to maybe not like give up, but to say, all right, you know, my relationship with you is more important. This argument is not. And then there's also been times where I said, no, being right is much more important to me right now because I know that I'm right. Um, so that was one. And then the other one was given to me by a clinician um, when I first started working in residential. And it's always stuck with me. I, I closed my senior thesis with this. Um, and it was, you can't change a child's past you can only better prepare them for the future. And that's always stuck with me, A, because I think when you first get into trauma work, you get really, really stuck on quote unquote fixing a kid or making, or you want to make up for everything that's bad that's ever happened to them. But really the best thing you can do for them is like I told my kids um, when I was in residential, my job is to prepare you for the future. Um, And so doing that is the best thing that you can ever do for them. Thank you. Thank you for coming on this week. It's my so, pleasure. So excited we to see your face. That's it for this, this week's episode of The Tea with Brie. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Tea with Brie. Send me an email at theteawithbrie at gmail.com and visit the website theteawithbriepodcast.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. And a special thanks as always to Mama Duke for our theme music. And I will talk to y'all next week. Bye.